Hi, welcome to the session. In this podcast, we will cover pre-labor rupture of membranes. In January of 2018, the college changed the terminology of PROM, traditionally referred to as premature rupture of membranes, implying that the amniotic sac ruptured before the onset of labor. However, because the term premature caused some confusion with patients, it is now referred to as pre-labor rupture of membranes. Remember that PROM, pre-labor rupture of membranes, can occur either preterm less than 37 weeks or at term. Pre-term, pre-labor rupture of membranes complicates about 3% of all pregnancies in the U.S. The optimal timing to clinical assessment and treatment of women with term and preterm PROM remains controversial, but there's some established guidelines which we'll cover which have been published by the college as well as the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Management hinges on knowledge of gestational age and evaluation of the relative risks of delivery versus the risks of expected management like infection, abruption, and umbilical cord accidents. In this session, we will review the January 2018 updated bulletin on pre-labor rupture of membranes. Membrane rupture can occur for a variety of reasons, although membrane rupture at term can result from the normal physiologic weakening of the membranes combined with shearing forces created by uterine contractions. Preterm PROM can result from a wide array of pathological conditions that act individually or in concert. Intraamniotic infection has been shown to be commonly associated with preterm PROM, especially at earlier gestational ages. A history of preterm PROM is a major risk factor for preterm PROM or preterm labor in a subsequent pregnancy. Additional risk factors associated with preterm PROM are similar to those associated with spontaneous preterm birth and include a short cervical length, second trimester and third trimester bleeding, low body mass index, low socioeconomic status, cigarette smoking, and illicit drug use. Now, at term, PROM complicates about 8% of pregnancies and is generally followed by the prompt onset of spontaneous labor and delivery. In a large randomized trial, one half of women with PROM who were managed expectantly, that's without Pitocin or other eutotonic medication, had an interval of membrane rupture to delivery of 33 hours and 95% gave birth within 94 hours to 107 hours of membrane rupture dependent upon oxytocin and prostaglandins. Now, the most significant maternal consequence of term PROM is intrauterine infection, the risk of which increases with the duration of membrane rupture. Well, let's go back to preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes. Regardless of obstetric management or clinical presentation, birth within one week of membrane rupture occurs in at least one half of patients with preterm PROM. So that's a clinical pearl. Regardless of obstetric management or clinical presentation, birth within one week of membrane rupture occurs in at least half of patients who rupture under 37 weeks. 
Now, latency after membrane rupture is inversely correlated with the gestational age at membrane rupture. In other words, the earlier that a patient ruptures in pregnancy, the longer the latency until the initiation of spontaneous labor. Cessation of amniotic fluid leakage with restoration of normal amniotic fluid volume may occur in the setting of spontaneous preterm PROM and is associated with favorable outcomes. Among women with preterm PROM, clinically evident intramniotic infection occurs in about 15 to 25 percent of cases, and postpartum infection occurs in about 15 to 20 percent. The incidence of infection is higher at earlier gestational ages. Additionally, abruption can complicate 2 to 5 percent of pregnancies with preterm PROM. The most significant risks to the fetus after preterm PROM are complications of prematurity. Respiratory distress has been reported to be the most common complication of preterm birth. Sepsis, intraventricular hemorrhage, and necrotizing enterocolitis also are associated with prematurity, but these are less common near to term. Preterm PROM with intrauterine inflammation has been associated with an increased risk of neurodevelopmental impairment, and early gestational age at membrane rupture has also been associated with a higher risk of neonatal white matter damage. However, there are no data that suggest that immediate delivery after presentation with PROM will avert these risks. Infection and umbilical cord accident contribute to about 1-2% risk of antenatal fetal demise after preterm PROM. Now, pre-labor rupture of membranes is most dangerous just around the time of fetal viability, around 23 to 24 weeks. The rate of pulmonary hypoplasia after PROM before 24 weeks varies widely among reports, but it's likely in the range of 10 to 20%. Pulmonary hypoplasia is associated with a high risk of mortality, but is rarely lethal with membrane rupture subsequent to 23 to 24 weeks, presumably because alveolar growth adequate to support postnatal development already has occurred. Early gestational age at membrane rupture and low residual amniotic fluid volume are the primary determinants of the incidence of pulmonary hypoplasia. Prolonged oligohydramnios also can result in fetal deformations, including potter-like facies and limb contractions or other positional abnormalities. The reported frequency of skeletal deformities are about 1.5 to 3.8%, but many of these resolve without postnatal growth and physical therapy. All right, next, let's get into the diagnosis of pre-labor rupture of membranes. Most cases of PROM can be diagnosed on the basis of the patient's history and physical exam. Examination should be performed in a manner that minimizes the risk of introducing infection. Because digital cervical examination increases the risk of infection and adds little information to that available with sterile speculum examination, digital exam generally should be avoided unless the patient appears to be in active labor or delivery seems imminent. The diagnosis of membrane rupture typically is confirmed by the visualization of amniotic fluid passing from the cervical canal and pooling in the vagina, or a basic pH test of vaginal fluid, or seeing arborization, ferning of dried vaginal fluid, which can be identified with a microscopic exam. 
Now, because there's false positives to this test in equivocal cases, additional testing can help with the diagnosis. Ultrasonographic examination of amniotic fluid volume can be a helpful test, but it's not diagnostic. Fetal fibronectin is a sensitive but nonspecific test for ruptured membranes. In other words, a negative test is strongly suggested of intact membranes, but a positive test result is not diagnostic of PROM. Several commercially available tests for amniotic fluid proteins like PAMG1, that's placental associated microglobulin 1, are currently available on the market. PAMG1 is otherwise known as Amnisure. However, False positive test results of anywhere from 20 to 30% have been reported in patients with clinically intact membranes and symptoms of labor. Therefore, the exam still defaults to physical examination with ancillary testing, which can be supportive or point against rupture. Now, for historical purposes and as a clinical pearl, the best way to diagnose rupture of membranes is also slightly invasive, so it's not done much anymore. Nonetheless, PROM can be diagnosed unequivocally with ultrasonographically guided transabdominal installation of indigocarmine dye, followed by the passage of blue dye into the vagina, which is documented by a stained tampon or pad. Now, it's important to note that maternal urine will also turn blue, so that should not be confused with amniotic fluid. In all patients with PROM diagnosed, gestational age, fetal presentation, and fetal well-being should be determined. The examination should also evaluate for evidence of intrauterine infection, abruption, and fetal compromise. If results are not already available, then a test can be done for group B strep. In high-risk patients, it's also advised to do a vaginal swab for gonorrhea and chlamydia. In patients with preterm PROM, an initial period of electronic fetal monitoring and uterine activity monitoring offers the opportunity to identify abnormal fetal heart rate tracings and evaluate for contractions. Management after confirmation of PROM is dependent primarily on gestational age, and we'll cover that in just a few minutes. Now, non-reassuring fetal status or suspected clinical intramniotic infection, defined as maternal temperature above 100.4, uterine tenderness, foul-smelling or purulent amniotic fluid, and fetal tachycardia or significant abruptoplacentae are all clear indications for delivery. Otherwise, gestational age is the primary factor when considering delivery versus expected management. Okay, next, let's go through the rapid-fire protocol by ACOG for the management of PROM based on gestational age. For women presenting with pre-viable, pre-term PROM, that's rupture of membranes, before 23 to 24 weeks, women should be counseled on the extreme risks of expectant management versus immediate delivery at this gestational age. Counseling should include a realistic appraisal of neonatal outcomes. Immediate delivery should be offered according to the college. Attempts should be made to provide parents with the most current and accurate information possible. Now, if the patient opts for expectant management, remember, this is before fetal viability, and if the patient is clinically stable with no evidence of infection, outpatient surveillance can be considered. 
Precautions should be reviewed with the patient and she should come to the hospital if she develops symptoms of infection, labor, or of abruption. Now, it may be useful to instruct patients to monitor temperatures every four hours. Typically, women with pre-viable PROM who have been cared for as outpatients are admitted to the hospital once the pregnancy has reached viability. That's once again, 23 to 24 weeks. Administration of antenatal corticosteroids and latency antibiotics for fetal maturation upon reaching viability is appropriate given the early delivery remains likely in this case. Now, multiple ultrasonographic methods like thoracic measurements and ratios, flow velocities in the pulmonary vessels, and three-dimensional estimation of lung volume have been studied to evaluate pulmonary development in the antepartum period, but all are limited accuracy and cannot be considered sufficiently reliable to predict and to manage clinical care. Now, because most studies of antibiotic prophylaxis with preterm PROM enroll patients only after 24 weeks, there's not a lot of data to assess the risks and benefits of antibiotics or steroids at earlier gestational age. So as of now, steroids are not recommended before viability. However, according to the college, it's reasonable to offer a course of antibiotics for pregnancy prolongation to patients who present with pre-viable PROM starting at 20 weeks in those who choose expectant management. Therefore, at this time, it is not advised to give steroids under 23 weeks, although steroids can be given beginning at 23 weeks and zero days, and antibiotics for latency can begin at 20 weeks. Now, there's no evidence to support the use of tocolytics in the setting of pre-viable preterm PROM. So once again, tocolytics are not recommended before 23 weeks. Well, now that we've already discussed rupture of membranes less than 23 to 24 weeks, what is the management for preterm rupture, which occurs at 24 weeks and zero days, to 33 weeks and 6 days. Well, expectant management is the key here, unless there's evidence of non-reassuring fetal status, clinical choreo, or significant abruption. Antibiotics are given to prolong latency, and that's a combination of ampicillin and erythromycin. Single-course corticosteroids, either dexamethasone or betamethasone, are given for fetal lung maturity. Additionally, GBS prophylaxis is given when labor seems eminent. Now, for patients who present with pre-labor rupture of membranes at 34 weeks and zero days and above, then it's advised to proceed with delivery. GBX prophylaxis is given to those under 37 weeks unless a GBS culture has returned negative. Additionally, remember that steroids can be given, although initially were given up to 34 weeks. Steroids for fetal lung maturity are now advised up to 36 weeks and six days according to the ALPS or the ALPS trial, that's antepartum late preterm steroids study. Once again, steroids can be given up until 36 weeks and 6 days, but labor should not be deferred just to give steroids in patients who present with PROM at or beyond 34 gestational weeks. Well, now, as we start getting to the end of our podcast, we have to say a word about magnesium sulfate. Magnesium sulfate is used for fetal neuroprotection in patients with expected or at risk for preterm birth under 32 weeks. 
randomized controlled trials have demonstrated that maternal administration of magsulfate used for fetal neuroprotection when birth is anticipated before 32 weeks and zero days reduces the risk of cerebral palsy in surviving infants. Now, in the largest of those trials, 85% of the women enrolled had preterm PROM between 24 weeks and 32 weeks of gestation. The optimal treatment regimen for fetal neuroprotection remains unclear, and different regimens have been used in different trials. Hospitals that elect to use mag sulfate for fetal neuroprotection should have their own policies and uniform protocol to prevent confusion. Now, regardless of the treatment regimen used, women with preterm PROM before 32 weeks and zero days who are thought to be at risk of eminent delivery should be considered candidates for fetal neuroprotective treatment with magnesium sulfate. Okay, well, as we start getting to the end of this podcast, well, how do we manage a patient who has preterm PROM with a cervical cerclage in place? Well, according to the college, a firm recommendation of whether the cerclage should be removed after preterm PROM cannot be made and either removal or retention is reasonable, but it takes each clinical assessment to make that determination. Now, regardless, if a cerclage remains in place with preterm PROM, Prolonged antibiotic prophylaxis beyond seven days is not recommended. Okay, so let's finish this podcast with a quick rapid-fire summary of recommendations from the American College of OBGYN for management of PROM. Patients with PROM before 34 weeks and zero days should be managed expectantly if no maternal or fetal contraindications exist. To reduce maternal and neonatal infections and gestational age-dependent morbidity, a seven-day course of therapy with a combination of IV, ampicillin, and erythromycin followed by oral amoxicillin and erythromycin is recommended during expected management of women with preterm PROM who are at less than 34 weeks and zero days gestation. Women with preterm PROM and a viable fetus who are candidates for intrapartum GBS prophylaxis should receive intrapartum GBS prophylaxis to prevent vertical transmission regardless of earlier treatments. A single course of corticosteroids is recommended for pregnant women between 23 weeks of gestation and up to 36 weeks and 6 days gestation. However, after 34 weeks, delivery should not be withheld simply to get steroids on board. Women with preterm PROM before 32 weeks and 0 days who are thought to be at risk of eminent delivery should be considered candidates for fetal neuroprotective treatment with magnesium sulfate. Lastly, for women who present at 34 weeks and 0 days of gestation or greater with PROM, delivery is recommended for all women with these ruptured membranes. For women who present at 37 weeks or more, if spontaneous labor does not occur near the time of presentation, and those who do not have contraindications to labor, then labor should be induced. Okay, that wraps up our quick clinical summary of the ACOG Practice Bulletin from January 2018 on PROM, now called pre-labor rupture of membranes. We'll see you next time.